Welcome to Torah Talk, a program that challenges 2,000 years of misunderstanding and neglect of the Torah, God's law. In this show, we will be threshing ideologies by examining these scriptures in their Hebraic contexts. Our goal is to separate the wheat from the chaff, the truth from misconception. This program is sponsored by The Harvest, a Messianic Charismatic Congregation in Thornton, Colorado. Shalom, lovers of the Torah, and thank you for choosing to listen to Torah Talk. We have a great podcast for you. Today we have a midrash on the Torah portion called Shemot, which is translated names. It begins in Exodus chapter 1, and it actually carries all the way through to the first verse of chapter 6. So there's a lot of information here. It's a great Torah portion, one of the most exciting Torah portions, because it's the, it's the drama of um, the children of Israel being delivered and coming out of this huge world empire that was so oppressive and so anti-God and anti-Messiah called Egypt. So in the story, of course, we get the big uh, uh, items like Pharaoh and uh, his kingdom, his oppression. Uh, he enslaved all the neighboring countries around him to, to build his cities. And of course, the Jewish people, the sons of Jacob, are there, and they're part of this whole um, tyranny, this, this, this slave trade and the, and the slavery to build the cities of Egypt. And uh, they cry out to God, of course, and uh, God sends them a deliverer, Moses. And God intervenes through Moses with signs and wonders. It's a great story, the story of empires that rise and fall based on how they relate to the chosen people and God's plan for the world. And so that's the bigger picture that we want to focus on is this story resonates and has traction because um, Egypt's not the only empire that comes along to persecute the chosen people. It's not the only empire that comes along that says, we don't care about the plan of God, the creator, and what he has for the nations. We're going to do what we want to do uh, um, in terms of, of, of the agenda of, of an empire. And so uh, it's a great story. It has a lot of lessons for us. And I think it's really relevant today uh, due to the fact that we're kind of in that context. Once again, we have the United Nations. And, uh, and of course, our nation, America, has become almost an empire when you think about it. We're everywhere, and um, and we're not really doing a whole lot of good nowadays. Uh, I think there's a lot of greed and corruption, and our agenda is certainly uh, not what it, what it used to be when we first were formed as a nation. And so you throw into that, of course, the Islamic terror that we're seeing and the rise of Islamic terror, terror in the earth, and uh, you got a lot of these elements of empire once again in uh, today's context. So uh, stay with us. It's going to be a controversial show. Um, before we get started, I'd like to welcome my guests today. And we have our regular Torah teacher, BJ. BJ, it's great to have you on the show as always. And uh, also one of our elders, uh, Dr. Randy Craig. This is the first time on the show for uh, Dr. Craig. And so we welcome you as well. And uh, just real quick, uh, both of you, how are you doing? I am uh, super excited. I love when it is that we get to start a new uh, book within our Torah cycle and, and certainly a, a fan of, of Exodus and what it is that it means for us today and for our country. So I'm excited to be here. Thank That's you. That's great. It's good to have you. I'm layered up and warm, uh, facing single-digit temperatures here in Denver. And uh, like uh, Pastor Mark said, the... Um, this is a story that's known in bits and pieces probably 
um, across our culture. Moses, Pharaoh, the deliverance. Um, it's a great illustration of connecting uh, individual decisions with na- that impact nations. So I think the discussion will be revelational, and I'm looking forward to it. That's great. Great. All right. Well, let's jump into the text. I'm going to begin in Exodus chapter 1, and I encourage all of our listeners to grab your Bibles and open them up and uh, ask God for fresh revelation and illumination on what this story is all about and what it meant for our ancestors and what it means to us today. And so in Exodus chapter 1, I'll begin the reading. It says, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They each came um, one with his household. And then we have a list of uh, the names that are before us, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, uh, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. What are some of the uh, high points of that section? Well, we start with a a group of 70 that the Lord takes and makes uh, greatly increased and multiplied and fruitful. And it's just what it is that he does with such a small number and and begins the making into the nation of, of what it is that we've become. And that's part of what it is that he does is he can just take something so little and something so small and, and increase and multiply and, uh, fill the land with it. And he can do that within, you know, more than just our population, but such a picture to me of, of his, uh, blessing and multiplication of what it is that the Lord can do. Yes. It reminds me of Genesis one and the original mandate, be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's what they did. They were simply following the plan of God and, uh, they did, they multiplied greatly. There was no, what we would call family planning among the Hebrews at this period of time. Their family planning was, we plan to have as many children as <laughs> That's we right, that's right. And, you, you know, you think, well, you know, that's not that's not uh, very wise or, or, or uh, whatever you'd want to call it. But in actuality, if you want to grow a nation, you've got to get this part down. You've got to have good, strong numbers and multiply and be fruitful in that. That's part of the matrix of becoming a great and mighty people. And they certainly, with God's help... Uh, we're we're cer- certainly accomplishing that. You know, in this in this story too, you, we we're introduced to the reality that the redemptive work of God transcends generations. We we see the passing of significant names of uh, people that were major players in the Book of Genesis, and we're moving on to see how the redemptive work of God uh, through uh, Israel is being played out. Yeah, you know, I, I want to just you know digress for a moment. Um, just thinking about that, I thought, you know, it's interesting that, uh, in, in America today, um, especially among, um, I hate to, I hate to use terms that are, that are racial because I don't even believe in, in different races anyway. We're all human beings. But when you think of, of the kind of the white European, um, family unit in America, it's all about having maybe one. And, and, and if you really are just not, very careful. You might have two, but you know, uh, it's, you want, I think you want to have 1.2 kids. However that works out. I don't know, but it's all about not being fruitful and multiplying. It's the exact opposite. 
And so we're seeing really a tremendous decline in numbers. And then you have also this phenomenon among other ethnic groups, and I think that's a better term, ethnic uh, groups, but if you deal with the Latinos or the, or the Hispanics, uh, they're having a lot of kids. They're having a lot of kids, and they are being fruitful, and they're multiplying. And even in Islam, for instance, you have this big push on being, um, on multiplying and, and, and being fruitful in terms of the numbers uh, within your, your family unit. Uh, you know, when you follow the laws of God, it, it works no matter who you are. You're going you're gonna to increase dramatically, and it won't be long, in a generation perhaps or two, that you become the major dominant people group in a nation. And I think to myself, wow, we, we uh, need to learn who God is and what his design is and fit into it Amen. and find the blessing in that. And uh, Israel did. She did and she grew and she became mighty within Egypt. And Egypt said, whoa. We gotta, we gotta somehow figure out what to do with these Hebrews, Amen. because they have become exceedingly great in our land, and so that was a problem. That was a problem. And you're touching on a truth um, of how we view children. Do we view them as assets or liabilities? Yeah. It's a confrontation between the world's thinking and God's ways. Yeah. Uh, if we truly believe children are a blessing, then they're an asset we're willing to receive what God has for us. If we believe they're a liability, then we try to limit the liability. Yeah, that's right. And before the industrial revolution, the more kids you had, the greater chance of becoming wealthy, you know, because everyone was basically primarily agricultural. So if you had 10 kids, you can handle a lot of land and farm it and develop it. And if you only had like one or two, you were pretty much, you know, not going to not going to do too well. And after the Industrial Revolution, kids then become a liability Amen. rather than an asset. Yeah, yeah. And I think if our government was wise, they would actually incentivize marriage and give much larger um, subsidies for each child you have and just really kind of spur on this idea of being fruitful and multiplying, we would be a much stronger nation. Um, not, not if just that was in place, but yeah. if that was one of the components we put in place. Yes. So yeah, I, I agree with you right now. Kids are a liability. We only had two and that wasn't for a lack of trying. Um, and my wife is next to me. She doesn't have a mic today, but uh, you know what? We only had two, but we did, you know, your children love it every time you use that phrase, by the way. Yeah, do they? You think every so? Every okay. time you say, not for a lack of trying. That's right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they're totally embarrassed about that. Anyway, um, the amazing thing is, 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 you know, the amount of money that we have spent in raising them is enormous, enormous. Um, to, to our last two years in high school with our, our youngest, you know, we were, the tuition was about 16000 a year. And, uh, you know, we're allocating that for, for, of course, a good uh, Judeo-Christian environment in their learning in a private uh, school. Uh, but when you factor in all the costs involved in raising kids, it's enormous. It is truly a liability financially to have a child. And uh, that, that I wish I could change. Vote for me in 2016. Just joking. 
<laughs> you know, we, we need to incentivize the family. That's really what we need to do. So um, great. All right, let's go on. Verse eight. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom, Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so they were in dread of the sons of Israel." The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously imposed upon them. Oh, there's a lot in here for me. The uh, Now we knew a, a new king had arisen in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Man, just the difference of uh, the favor that Joseph had. Yes. I mean, when we look at what it is that Joseph was to the people of Egypt and his position and his authority and what it is that he did to save the lives of the people in Egypt, you know, when, when they forget about who it is that he is, his people, his descendants start becoming... Uh, start becoming something that they're fearing instead of remembering who it is that, that Joseph was. And they immediately start, well, in this passage, they start worrying about the sons of Israel are more and they're mightier than we, they look at their numbers and they, they say, you know, this could be a problem when, um, they start talking about war. They go into a place of thinking about if we go to war and they're against us, we're in so much trouble. Instead of looking at these people and remembering that that Joseph, who uh, was the head of, of many of these you know descendants, that he saved their lives. Yes. And instead of looking at that and thinking these people could be our greatest asset, you know, this, yes. I love when we talk assets and liabilities. That always <laughs> excites the accountant in me. But when we look at that and, and they think, oh, this could be such a liability because if we go to war, they're going to be too much for us. Instead of going, look at what it is that their God has done to prosper them. Look at what it is that has happened with yeah. them. And look at the history that they have of the blessing that we've received yes. through the God, of, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead of looking at that way, they look at them as what could be their opponents instead of thinking about it as, as what could be you know, their brethren of, Hey, what about if we go to war and these people fight with us? They don't even think about that. That's right. They should have been saying, if we go to war, we'll kill our opponents. The Hebrews are with us. Right. You know, we have this relationship with the sons of Jacob. We'll crush our enemies. You're right. It was a, it was a poor choice of perspective based in fear that led to this turnaround in terms of how they viewed uh, the sons of Jacob. That's, that's uh, shocking. Well, it illustrates the, um, the old saying that if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, this is my first time on this, this show, but my hunch is there are many parents out there who are making an effort to counter the replacement history that's being taught to the uh, generation of our kids with a, uh, in trying to communicate an accurate view of even the history of our own country. Yeah. And I think that uh, we applaud you if you're doing that because it's going to make such a difference with the generation of kids who have an accurate view of history uh, who come in to influence our culture and take us in the right direction. Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. Great. Any any other thoughts, BJ? Uh, not so far. Okay, great. Okay, so they um, they they of course oppress them, and they say, you know what? You're going to you're going to we're gonna we're we're gonna actually subjugate them through harsh labor, and they appoint taskmasters over them to really um, break them down and to keep them kind of under you know their 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 oppression, not realizing that. That's actually what makes a people group strong. You know, it's adversity, it's pressure that, that can actually work the opposite of what you think you're going to accomplish. We, we don't like to come to terms with this idea, but it's true. It's adversity that shapes us and makes us strong, or at least gives us the Amen. opportunity to become strong. Our character is shaped not in the good times, or on the mountain peaks. It's shaped in the hard times and in the valleys. And we need those times if we're going to grow in our character. And so what, what Pharaoh intended to do, this, this new Pharaoh intended to do, actually God was going to use to begin to prepare his people and shape them to rise up to what he was calling them to be. His, his treasured people later on is, is what they become. So this is part of the process. And the sad thing is, it's not sad. The disturbing thing is that God is sovereign. He's actually allowing this and he's um, going to use it. And that's like, ah, you ever been in a place where everything is just so bad and you're like, like, God, are, are you even aware of this? And he's like, yeah, I'm orchestrating it. It's like, how could you? You know, you're just like, so like, what? But yet in the end, after you come through that and you look back, you're able to say, I'm grateful for that. Actually, I see it now and how important it was at the time, though. I was so angry at you, God. Yeah, God is in this. He is going to strengthen them through what what Pharaoh is doing. Okay, verse 15. We'll pick it up. Then the king of Egypt. I'm sorry. Do you have? Oh, yeah. Let's go. Let's do it. So when you were talking about that, of the more that they were afflicted, the more they were multiplied. I, I think that there probably is a really natural answer to that is that when you don't have anything else to do, multiplication seems like a, a <laughs> go-to of what it is that you can you know do. But also, don't, don't embarrass my kids anymore. I've, I've already done that. For some reason, I don't embarrass them. It's weird. They're fine with me talking about that it. That is. Not so uh, what you. is up with yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, but also it's that spiritual concept of it, you know, we hate it and we don't want to go there, but it is that place of affliction where it is that we grow because it's that place where, you know, I want to say I'm a prayer warrior, but you know what really makes me a prayer warrior? Affliction. You know, yes. I mean, I'm not proud of that, but it's really in those times that it is we, we learn to draw on God. And when it is that you're pleading with him and when it is that you're spending that time with him and when it is that you're coming together as a community, you know, they're coming together as a group of people afflicted. That makes you very strong and united when you have a common cause. Yes. Common cause is a huge, powerful motivation for unity. And then also, you know, I think about, you know, someone who says they're a really good runner, but they only run flat. You know, they only run on flat surfaces. Yeah. You know, you, you can see whether it is, that, you know, how, how good of a runner you are once you're running up hills. Yeah. You know, once it is that you're running in maybe not, like, I, I think I'm great on the treadmill, yeah. in the nice, you know, temperature controlled. But when you start seeing affliction and you start going, that's really someone who uh, who who is determined. It makes you determined to have to climb and 
um, overcome those hardships. And I think that that was something that, that really backfired on Egypt was thinking that when you are hurt and struggling, that you kind of give up. And really that's, that's not what most of us are going to do. Most of us that when we have that, we're going to fight back to that. And so it actually makes us to where it is that they are going to go to war with us. There was nothing about them going to war with us before it is that they started to afflict us before it is that they started to really put them in bondage and slavery. They were not the enemy. It doesn't talk about them being the enemy until it is that you do that. And then what you've done is you've created a united front of people who are crying out for God, multiplying, raising you know, what becomes this army of people and they've got such unity in uh, what it is that, that they've been put within. They've got such unity within each other because of that. Yeah. It's nothing like uh, oppression that unites injustice, injustice. Well, that's true. I mean, when we look at, you know, things, things that might not be good in, in society and, and we, you know, we've had, uh, you know, until it is that there's suddenly a civil rights movement, you know, until it is that a people come together. And then when you start oppressing them, man, they're going to come together even stronger. You know, they're going to do whatever it is that it takes at that point. Most people don't just lay back and and say, okay, well then fine. You know, if if you're going to oppress me, then I'll just go ahead and, and, and do this. That, that doesn't tend to be what it is that we as a people will, will do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Martyrdom is is the fuel to um to become the catalyst for church growth for instance uh just just an amazing thing so but uh who wants to be the martyr right okay this is uh, a counter-cultural message yes it's, uh, it, it which is, is uh, one of the reasons it's so important what pastor mark and what bj just said is because because of our upbringing in a culture that's focused on creature comforts and fast service uh, the adversity sometimes is harder to embrace, but this narrative really illustrates the value of it. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, see them and see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women were not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you, every son who is, who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So here we have the midwives who they fear God. And so what do we see that their, their action is that they then disobey their leadership. They disobey the government. And then when it is that they're called upon it, they lie to them about it. And God says that he was pleased with them. So, you know, there's a time and a place to say, uh, I have to be disobedient to this 
because it is it is unacceptable to what it is that my my uh, God would have. I mean, sometimes you pay unto Caesar what Caesar's, but other times you lie to them and say, "I'm sorry." The the Hebrew women they just give birth so quickly. I mean, yes. there is a place for saving, especially when it comes to life. I mean, that's such an easy one. But when you when you get to that place of, of God saying, and he was so pleased with them and their families grew and they were blessed and they were multiplied. And it, it comes from a place of basically, I mean, you know, we see the disobedience, but it comes to a place of saying that they feared God more than they feared yes. man. You, you know, this is a great example of, of one of the earliest um, illustrations of civil disobedience. Um, you, you know, I know people get excited about lying to the government. It's not about lying to the government, you know. And, um, you know, there, there's there's those far and few between times that you, you are justified in lying to your delegated authority. Um, and this was one of them. There is a time and a place for civil disobedience. And I, I forget who said it. I think it was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who stated that an unjust law is not a law at all. And uh, what we have here is a an authority, uh, legislating laws that are not laws at all. And, uh, as, as human beings, no one's required to embrace and follow an unjust law that results in the death of other innocent beings. If there was ever a time for civil disobedience, this was one of them. And it was a clear example of that. Um, so yeah, uh, I think our problem is never really civil disobedience, in the context of, of it being justified, we are all, all too eager to lie to our government. I don't know what it is about Americans, but, you know, uh, we're not very trusting of our, of our governments. I think we can be more trusting. And I do think there is a place, even today, in different areas for civil disobedience. So, This also points out the, um, just the reality that when God is raising up deliverers or deliverer, there is an attack on the unborn or the recently born. And uh, it makes you wonder just what deliverers, what m young men and women are have been born since Roe v. Wade in 1973 that are being raised up as leaders, deliverers, rescuers, people that are going to make a difference in the, uh, in the advancement of the kingdom of God in the days we live in. Yes, yes. So uh, it's interesting to note that um, Pharaoh commanded all the people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. So for all the sons, gather them up and throw them into the Nile. And, uh, you know, you can you could visualize that and imagine that these these infants being thrown into the mighty uh, river of Egypt, the Nile River, um, killing, killing um, the male children. Of Israel, and we note at the end of the story, it comes full circle. And what do we find God doing in His justice as an equitable judge? What does He do? He throws Egypt's sons into the water, where they too drown. I think that is so amazing, and uh, it speaks of the justice of God. That there is a God who judges in the world today, and justice does come. Maybe, maybe not in the timing that we want it, or in the way that we want it, but His judgments are true and pure and and righteous altogether. And and I, I rejoice when I read this story. I just think, wow, 
you know, he takes Pharaoh and Egypt to task. He judges Pharaoh and Egypt, and he judges the gods of Egypt, these divine beings who are inciting and inspiring the leaders of Egypt to do the things that they're doing. And so it's, it's an awesome story. Well, I don't know if this is encouraging for me or discouraging for me, but when, when we look at this and, and they have been told, okay, as soon as this, this woman gives birth, if it's a son, then you'll, you'll put him to death. And we think, what could be more horrendous? I mean, really, what could be more horrendous than this? It just, it's appalling to me of even, even thinking about it. And so then when you see their civil disobedience and you see that they're able to kind of, you know, have that freedom from that, you're at that place of kind of feeling that freedom and you're at that place of feeling like God has really, you know, done this for us. And, and you kind of think it's smooth sailing after that. And then Egypt comes back and says, okay, well, fine. If you can't do it right when they're born, then fine. A- anywhere between like zero and two, you know, like we'll just, we'll just start killing them when it is that they're older. You know, sometimes even that breakthrough, you can't be discouraged that there's going to be more attack after yes. that. Oftentimes, yes. they don't go, "Oh, you got us, good job," and then yeah. and then we don't have to do it anymore, and then we all live happily ever after. Part, you know, sometimes it becomes, "Okay, well, if you won't kill them when they're first born, then that's fine. We'll just keep killing them as it is that they get older." And you think, "Oh, wow, that's even more horrendous yeah. that that could happen." And and that oftentimes comes with our stand for what is right, with our walking in obedience to God. That the the attack doesn't just end once it is that we've past the first test, oftentimes it becomes harder after that. Yes. You know, it reminds me of the earlier passage in Genesis where it said, where God said, the seed of the woman will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. Mm -hmm. And when you think about that, um, you find this, this drama over and over and over in every generation throughout the world, this ongoing battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness, the children of the light and the children of the darkness, those who believe in God and those who hate God. And it is an ongoing struggle. And, uh, and it's, here, it's here today. When you think of ISIS, for instance, and their genocide against uh, believers, Christians, it's just like shocking as it comes into view what that's all about. And you see the sons of darkness once again attacking the... Uh, the children of the light. And so it's an ongoing struggle. The good news is the children of the light, um, they become victorious, not only at different points along the historical corridor of time, but in the end there is a, there is an overthrow of wickedness finally and forever. And that is uh, a great hope and a great inspiration. So good. All right. Well, that is the end of this show, and I want to uh, conclude this show this week by thanking our great King, Yeshua the Messiah, my co-host, Torah teacher BJ, my guest today, Elder Dr. Craig, our listeners and supporters for making this podcast possible through your prayers and financial giving. I'm your host, Torah teacher Mark, and until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua the Messiah. Shalom. Torah Talk has been brought to you by The Harvest, a Messianic Charismatic Congregation located at 8891 Pose Boulevard in Thornton, Colorado. Your host has been Pastor Mark McClellan. 
Join us for Sabbath services at 1 p.m. next Saturday afternoon. For more information, please call us at 303-761-9948 or visit our website at www.graftedin.com. God bless you and shalom.